episode 95 of All About Fitness. Before I get into the introduction for this episode's guest, I just want to say thank you to my buddy Dirk in Texas for writing in to let me know there's a little problem with the recording in episode 94. <laughs> Apparently, I had uh, mixed the tracks a little bit wrong. There's a little bit of dead space. So, Dirk, thanks for listening and thanks for giving me a heads up on that. And for people listening, if you're enjoying All About Fitness, here's a chance, here's a time where I'm going to do that ask. If you just take a moment out of your day and, and give us a rating here, let other people know how, how much you enjoy All About Fitness, we'd really appreciate it. Now, I, I can't believe that it's taken this long before this has happened. This is the first time that a listener reached out to me and said, hey, you might want to interview a person. I want to say a big thank you to Shane for giving me a heads up about this episode's guest. He wrote in a little while ago to, to let me know about a professional mountain biker by the name of Sonia Looney. Now, that sounds kind of cool. And I mean, it's already cool to hear about a, <laughs> to, to, to talk to a professional athlete. I really don't care about the sport. But not only that, but she has a master's degree in electrical engineering. And she's done some really, really cool stuff. In fact, that's her tagline. Her tagline is do epic stuff. She uses a different word for it that begins with an S and ends with a T. But I try to keep this clean for the ratings. So you can go to her blog and read all, all about that. But we have a really fun conversation today. I'd never met her before. We chatted for a few minutes before I hit the record button. And it was just really fascinating to hear her story, to hear how she got started in pro mountain biking, and to hear about some of the adventures that she's had. She was the first woman to do the multi-stage yak attack. That's a multi-day mountain bike race at the highest elevation in the world in the Himalayas. She had a couple of things go wrong with her equipment during the race that she had to work to overcome, and it really put her in a tough spot, but... You know, well, you have to listen to find out what happened. Before we get into the interview, we have a brief word from the sponsor of All About Fitness, TerraCore by Vicor Fitness, and then we'll have a conversation with Sonia Luna, professional mountain biker and doer of epic stuff. What is part bench, part balance trainer, part stability ball, part jump box, and all results? The TerraCore by Vicor Fitness, specially designed to help enhance balance, strength, agility, and metabolic conditioning. The TerraCore is quickly becoming the go-to piece of workout equipment used by fitness professionals around the world. Whether you're training to earn that eight-figure contract or just trying to get in better shape, the TerraCore will help you achieve results you never thought possible. TerraCore by Vicor Fitness, the shape of things to come. Go to www.vicorefitness.com and use code AAF, that's all about fitness, AAF, to save 20% on the purchase of a TerraCore. I'm Pete McCall with All About Fitness, speaking with Sonia Looney. Sonia, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Because in all honesty, usually I interview people from the fitness industry, but you're not quite in the fitness industry, are you? Uh, sort of. So hi, guys. My name's Sonia Looney, and I am an ultra-endurance professional mountain biker. And what the heck is that? I get asked that question a lot. Like, am I the, the person that hurdles myself off cliffs on the Red Bull Rampage? No. So if you think about running, mountain biking is an endurance sport like running and running has a bunch of different disciplines, a bunch of different distances. So I'm like the ultra marathoners with running like the hundred mile runners. So for mountain biking, I do hundred mile mountain bike races on single track. So it's like on a hiking trail basically is what it looks like. So riding up and down the trail and I also do multi-day races. So I'll do seven day races where it's kind of like tour de France format where every day there's a set start and finish. And then whoever has the fastest overall time over the allotted number of days of the race wins the race. Is that how the, the stage races, the stage races work is that you do the accumulated time over the entire event? Yeah. Like people will try to go for individual wins, like, cause every day is its own race, but for the overall to say, like I won this race, you have to have the overall most consistent performance. So you could actually lose half the stages, like come second or third on half of the stages. But as long as you're consistent across the number of days, which most of my races are seven days, then that's when you actually win the overall. So it's about really more about consistency instead of about winning every single stage. 
So basically, you're just a big one type, one muscle fiber, right? That's the, <laughs> that's the aerobic <laughs> muscle fiber of just being able to use oxygen efficiently. It's true. And, and you guys will find this really funny. So this year I decided that I was going to do a little bit of work in the gym with a trainer, which I've never done before. And he was having me do some assessment things. And then later we were doing some, some jumping and some more fast switch things. And he, the trainer actually laughed at me because I, I couldn't jump very high. I couldn't do a, a lot of these fast switch actions at all. And it was actually kind of embarrassing. <laughs> well, there's nothing. It's just, it's adaptation. And well, let me, let's take a step back. And how'd you get started in mountain biking? Were you an endurance athlete to begin with and, and just found the mountain bike or, or what, what got you started? It was, it's really funny. Like a lot of people think I've been riding my whole life, but I actually was a tennis player. Growing uh Oh, are you there? Are position. You there? So I didn't really identify. Sonia, you're cutting out on me just a little bit. Oh no. Can you hear me still? Yeah, I got you. I don't know if it's on my end or your end, but you're, you're saying you started out as a tennis player. I did. And I didn't really identify myself as solely growing up. I played the flute my whole life and I was academic in school but I actually started going to the gym and running my senior year of high school. And I was always an insecure kid that everybody picked on. But when I started doing something different, when I started going to the gym, when I started running and really focusing on my fitness, I found that I had a newfound confidence and people started treating me different. And what I believed out of myself changed as well. So I started running and I ran a marathon when I was 18, but I knew nothing about endurance training. So I ended up injuring myself and getting a stress fracture, which is pretty common. And I started going to spin class at the gym. And it was from spin class at the gym that I got into mountain biking because some people at my work invited me to go mountain biking. And two weeks later, I did my first race. And who knew that just by going to spin class that I would turn into like, I've won the world championship in 2015. I've traveled the world and it all started in the gym at spin class. <laughs> Where'd you grow up? Where, where was it? Which gym was it? Uh, it was Define fitness in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Actually, they, I should probably tell them cause they don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> that actually be something to kind of bring it back to, but is, did you grow up in Albuquerque? Yeah, I did. I lived there uh, until I was 22. And then I moved to Boulder, Colorado to go to grad school. And I just wanted to move to Boulder because I just knew that that's where I needed to be if I wanted to grow as an athlete. And it's so important to surround yourself with people with similar goals and people who empower you so that you can move in the direction that you want to go. Well, so many people, I think, that live in, in New Mexico, or I think people have this image in New Mexico as everybody being an outdoors person. Did you grow up doing a lot of outdoor stuff, camping, hiking, or is that something you got into later on? I, I did. My, my dad's very outdoorsy, so we would go camping and hiking, but I actually quit hiking cold turkey when I was in the sixth grade because my dad's idea of hiking was going straight up the side of a mountain with no trail. And he wouldn't really like slow down for me and my brother. So it was always like a death march going hiking with my dad. So I actually didn't hike for probably six and until I was like a senior in high school. I quit hiking because it was always this like terrible death march. <laughs> so then when you got into mountain biking, did you have that? At least you're familiar with being out in that terrain. It did, so was it was it an easy transition for you? It, it was, you know, it's, it's interesting because I talked to a lot of people who are afraid to start mountain biking and rightfully, you know, people are afraid they're going to fall down and get hurt and it's intimidating to fall down, but it doesn't really hurt that bad. Like you do fall down on the bike, but I remember when I started, I wasn't really worried about falling down. I wasn't really worried about anything because get, getting from indoors to outdoors, playing outside and that it's so rewarding as you're learning it because when we're adults we hardly ever have that feeling of oh my gosh I did it I, I I did that because we don't we don't challenge ourselves in that way a lot so mountain biking was like like one time this year someone said to me on the trail good cardio and it never occurred to me once until that guy said it in the 14 years I've been mountain biking that mountain biking is cardio it's just so <laughs> is it just seem, it seems natural to you very very easy does it come easily yeah, it does. And, you know, I, I really do think that just being outside in the forest and connecting with nature is so important. And it really does make it seem it's it's just not as hard mentally as it would be if you were inside. And like I live in Canada now and in the winter we have to ride inside. So it's it's a really different animal whenever you're training indoors versus when you're training outdoors. Yeah, the reflexes, everything else would be much different. Do you do anything specific for the re well, where in Canada are you? I'd be interested to find out where, which trainer did you just work with, or where did you just work with a with a trainer? Uh, 
so yeah, I live in Kelowna, British Columbia, which is about three and a half hours east of Vancouver. Okay. It's the fastest growing city in Canada right now. But the trainer was at Aspire Health Center or, or no, Aspire Fitness, I think is the name of the gym. Um, and the guy was like a former hockey player named Andrew. So it was, it was really interesting. And I, I never really learned how to ice skate cause I grew up in the desert and everybody in Canada skates. So there was this drill that he was having me do where you like put these things on your feet and you kind of like skate side to side to have that lateral movement. And I, when he asked me like, Oh, just go like you're ice skating and you're stopping. And I said, I don't know how to stop ice skating. <laughs> that's, that's interesting that you would have that because, and, and that's a whole different, that, that's a whole different culture. How's it been assimilating into, uh, into Canada? Have they been wanting to build a wall on their Southern border? You know, no, um, it, it's been really interesting because yeah, like politically, Canada is a very different climate and just it's more of a socialist country compared to the United States. And I've been reading this really interesting book by Dan Buettner called The Blue, Blue Zones of Happiness. And one of the things around the world that attributes to people's happiness is feeling comfortable in their in their political system. And a lot of a lot of that has to do with things like health care and safety and things like that. So I really enjoy living in Canada because I, I do really like the healthcare system. Um, it's it's interesting to see the Canadians because I've come from the U.S. where I had to claw my way into health insurance and where it was really expensive to take care of myself. And now you pay for it in other ways, like gas is two to three times the price in Canada as it is in the United States. And there's a luxury tax on everything. But I, I love like it feels so good to be able to just go to the doctor whenever something's wrong and not have to worry. Or like I had foot surgery last year. for it in a different way, like I said, but it's just a really nice feeling to have that. Well, and, and so in doing that, did you move to Canada specifically for training? What was uh -oh. the, uh, what, oh. what, yeah. Am I cutting out on you a little bit now? Are you there, Sonia? That is the problem with trying to speak with somebody up in the remote wilds of Canada. Uh, Skype dropped on us, but we were able to reconnect and we pick up the conversation starting right here. So Sonia, you what did your world champion? What's that mean? What did you do a series of events? How was that decided? So there are events for different disciplines. So there's like short course, long course, and the world championship that I won was 24 hour racing. So that means that you race your mountain bike for 24 hours straight. And the course for this, it's it's one loop. So you ride the same loop over and over like a hamster. And you have a pit zone that you stop to kind of like formula one or like where you stop and then they can refuel you. Or if you need something done, your bike, they can help you, but it's whoever rides the most laps in 24 hours wins. So anybody, any, anybody can pretty much sign up. Any pro can sign up for that. And every year it's in a different country in the year that I won it, it was actually in California. Where was it? Where was the course? It was in Weaverville, which I had no idea where that was, but it's in Northern California. Um, I still don't know exactly what it's close to. It felt like it was not close to anything near Redding. Well, yeah, that's, well, that's way up there. Um, now, <laughs> how tough is it when you go out on a course and when you're doing some of these single track, do you ever get a chance to walk the course? Or if you enter a race, are you sometimes going blind into, into the course and the environment? Yeah, that's a great question. So if you're doing cross country racing, which is the shorter distance, like hour and a half style racing, you actually can go and pre-ride the course, but the type of racing I do like a hundred mile race or a stage race, you never get to pre-ride the course. So I pretty much always race blind. And two years ago I did some enduro racing and enduro racing is you ride like uh, you ride the uphills, but only certain downhill sections are timed and you know, which downhills those are. So that is also blind racing. So you race downhill as, as fast as you can without knowing what's coming. So I'm actually really comfortable with blind racing because that's what I'm used to doing. And I kind of like it because for me, that's kind of real mountain biking, being able to read the terrain and make a quick decision. Whenever you spend time practicing something over and over, you're not necessarily able to, to read the terrain very well. So some people are very good whenever they can pre-ride a course and other people, and that same person could be really terrible if they didn't get to pre-ride the course. No, I think that's fascinating because I do get stuck, you know, and I don't compete in mountain biking, but I do get stuck in kind of sometimes going the same trail systems over and over again, partly out of time because I only have a limited amount of time for riding. I don't want to have to drive two hours to get to a trail system. 
So it's just easy to hit, hit what's close. So I couldn't imagine how difficult it would be to go out on a hundred mile ride, not really knowing what to expect. What in one of those hundred mile events or one of the ultra endurance events, Sonia, what's been kind of the most challenging, what's been the biggest obstacle you've had to overcome? Uh, it's a mental obstacle for sure. Like the longer the race gets, the more mental it gets. And even if you're winning a race, even if it's a short distance race, sometimes you just want to quit because it's so hard. It's so painful, so physically demanding. And there's also the pressure of if you're winning the race, you have everything to lose. So you, there's the the adage of like racing, racing to win versus racing, not to lose. So there's just mm. like a lot going on there mentally. And an, a hundred mile mountain bike race takes seven to eight hours. So that's a really long time to be vulnerable or like, say you were winning and then you got passed. Well, now you have to deal with that mentally. And like, there's just a lot going on in your mind. So being able to break the race down into shorter, shorter chunks in your mind. And then also just playing the long game instead of the short game, which is something that can be applied to business relationships to everywhere. Like looking at the big picture is the way to get through that, but it's not always easy. No, not at all. And are you familiar with Dr. Tim Noakes at all out of South Africa? No. Okay. So he's an exercise physiologist and a medical doctor as well, but I had him on the podcast not long ago and, and he's, he's not the only one. There are other people that are doing this, but he studies fatigue as an emotion. His claim is that fatigue is an emotional state. Have you, would you kind of agree with that just from an athlete's perspective that fatigue is somewhat emotional? And then if you learn how to be comfortable with it, that that can help you. Does that help you with your performance? I, I would say yes. Like I haven't done, I haven't actually ever thought of fatigue as an emotion and I'll have to go back and listen to that episode that you recorded. But yeah, like making decisions while you're tired can be really hard. It's like making decisions while you're hungry <laughs> and <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it's just really hard because the world seems harder whenever you're tired. So, yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I do think that racing and being in those situations, like at hour 20 of a 24-hour race, you're really not in your, your right mind. And being able to function in that type, of, uh, that type of mindset would be a helpful skill to have. Well, are you ever able, are you, uh, ever able to, to uh, meditate during that? Because I, I know a strength coach who works with MMA fighters – and he tries to push them to an extremely high intensity, and he tries to get them, when they're working at a really hard intensity, Sonia, he tries to have them kind of meditate to get to a meditative state there so they relax into the discomfort that that intensity causes. Does that make sense? Are you able to be, like, comfortable with the discomfort and, and kind of get into the groove where just you don't even notice it? Yeah, for sure. Um, it, it's not like traditional meditation. Like it's not like transcendental me transcendent medita meditation, but basically like you try and separate the emotion from what's happening. So if it hurts really bad or it's not going well, you just try and accept it instead of tie a story to it. And for me, a place that I really use this idea is when I start getting close to the end of a race, like it doesn't matter how long the race is, if it's five hours, if it's eight hours, if it's two hours, when I start getting, uh, when I have like 30% left to go, my mind wants to be done and I just want to be done. And I start losing the, the joy of the experience. So I try really hard to, 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 to not do future thinking, thinking about the finish line, thinking about how nice it'll be to be done. And I try to separate the, that thought and that emotion to just being here and now and focusing on, okay, what, what is my body doing in this moment? What are my surroundings looking like? What does it smell like? How does the air feel on my skin? And that could be a type of meditation it no that's exactly it you're, you're getting caught up in the uh here and now are you familiar with flow states have you read any of the work on, on flow yeah my high chicks in my high and spelling yeah. that guy's name yeah. is a total <laughs> nightmare but yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i yeah. love that stuff no i i, interv I interviewed uh mishka um on a previous podcast uh, about flow states and uh i also spoke with uh Jamie Wheel, the executive director of the Flow Genome Project. And so now you know, their work on flow is fascinating because they look at how do you get in that state in order to achieve your highest level performance. Do you know when you're out there racing, Sonia, do you notice whether or not you're in the flow state? And is there a way that you can kind of trigger that in yourself? I, I definitely can tell. And even on rides, I can tell when I'm in a flow state. And yeah, one of my la like I, I was in New Mexico for the holidays and I rode the same trail two days in a row. And the first day I was walking everything. The second day I rode everything and it seemed like there was nothing that could stop me from riding something. It was crazy. And I was in a flow state just on a bike ride. But I actually don't know how to trigger myself into being in that state. Like I think that 
being rested and being happy is a good starting point to be in that state, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to get there. So I, I'd love, if you have any advice on how to get there, I'd love to hear it. Well, I, I can give you their, I think uh, their, their recent book, um, stealing fire, uh, Jamie, Jamie wheel and Stephen Kotler wrote Stephen fire and they look stealing fire and they look at flow states and what they call the altered states economy. And, you know, whether you're, you know, whether you're competing in a mountain bike race or you're at work, you know, if you can kind of put yourself in that state, because the trick is, right, you have to, you just said it, and that's what made me think of it. You have to concentrate on what you're doing right now. When you're in a 24 hour race or you're in a 100 mile race, you can't think about, you know, what you're doing tomorrow, or what you did yesterday. You're focused on the here and now. Has that helped you in other facets? You know, that focus of being able to do a 100 mile race, how has that helped you in other facets of your life? For sure. Like, I'd say that the commitment to finishing is really helpful. And that actually started before bike racing that started with my master's degree. I was doing, um, electrical engineering and I actually did not like electrical engineering and I somehow finished a master's degree in it, (laughs) which sounds crazy, (laughs) but, um, taking that and just every time that you overcome a challenge and get past to the other side, it makes you a stronger person and it makes you believe in yourself more. So the more races I've done, the more times I've faced adversity and overcome it, the more that I realize I'm way more capable than I initially thought that I was. So, so I love, I love taking on these challenges because it really does make me better everywhere else in my life. And what, well, what prompted you to study electrical engineering? I was going to, uh, I was going to ask you about that, you know, because that's a very, I think that's a unique background. And, you know, why, why'd you go get an MSEE if, uh, if you're not really a huge fan of it? Well, it started, of course, like in high school, and I still am trying to figure out what I think about higher education. And I, I do, I do love higher education. I love school. I love learning, but it's really hard to pick what you're going to do as a career when you're 18 years old. So I, all my family are engineers and they all told me, oh, you got to do this. And I loved math and I love science in school. So I decided that I was going to get a degree in math or in biology. And my dad said to me, well, unless you want to get a master's degree, it's going to be really hard for you to get a job. So at that time, when I was 18, my, my values and everything about me was completely different than it was when I was four or five years older. So I thought, well, I just want to work. I want to go to school for four years, get like a job that pays decent and go buy a house, like follow the, follow the dream. (laughs) But I went to school and then I changed my, who I was changed. And I just had just found bike racing when I was 20. So that changed who I was. So I, I ended up not wanting to do that anymore. But when I finished school, I wasn't ready to um, move in that direction and go get a job, like a regular job. So I thought, well, if I go to grad school, they'll buy me some time. And I had, um, like I had a fellowship in a PhD program cause I had really good grades. So I just thought, well, I'll just figure it out as I go. And I loved the, ch- again, like it's back to the beginning. I loved the challenge. I loved, um, learning. I loved proving to myself that I could do something that was really hard, but in the end I wasn't passionate about it. And I was able to change careers. Like I worked as an engineer for a little while, but I changed careers because it's really hard for me to stick with something. Um, if I'm not passionate about it, like for, I guess I stuck with it for quite a while, but sticking in a career and doing that the rest of my life just seemed like a death sentence. Well, that's an interesting, that's an interesting viewpoint and an interesting perspective. And I do think there's a lot of conversation around kind of redefining the college experience. I teach in a junior college part-time and it's a one-year fitness certificate program. So it's not, I'm not, I'm not preparing people going on a med school by any stretch of the imagination, but I really think I've, I've become you know, when, when I was younger, I used to poo-poo um, junior colleges, you know, look down on them. But now I think they're a great resource because people might not know what they want to do. And they can go to a junior college for a year or two without a major investment and kind of explore a couple different options. So I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head right there with that. Now, in, let me explain to me what the yak attack is. What is the yak attack? <laughs> when to shift gears because I, I saw your TEDx video. Um, and I'll have it linked below in the show notes because that was a really a, that was a very compelling story. And and Sonia, I think you did a brilliant job of, of telling your story. Um, but what is the yak attack? Yeah, so the yak attack, first of all, was something that really defined me in my career. But what it is is a ten day multi-day mountain bike stage race in Nepal. And you cross the Annapurna circuit in the Himalaya, which means that you have to take your bike over Throngla Pass, which is almost 18,000 feet of elevation. And I had never really done, like I had hardly done any stage racing at this point. This was, I think the first year I did it was 2011. 
And I, I had never really traveled somewhere really foreign before, but a friend of mine was going to this race and told me about it and no woman had ever finished this race before. So I thought, wow, like this sounds pretty cool. I'm going to take this on. But I was terrified. Like I had never, like I had to fly to, to Asia on my own. And in this race, it's, it's very, um, it's very unsupported. So what that means is if something bad happens to you on this route, cause at the time there was no road back there, you're like way back in the Himalaya. And if you got sick or you got altitude sickness or, or you got hurt or something happened to your bike, you would have to turn back and hike back the way you came by yourself and then survive in Kathmandu on your own. So that was really terrifying for me was the, the idea of turning back. And I was also really worried about the altitude sickness because it doesn't matter how fit, how fit you are or how many times you've been to high altitude, it could strike at any time. And what that, and that could kill you. So my doctor actually cautioned me that, Hey, like if you start having symptoms, I know your personality is to keep pushing, but you need to go back. So there's a lot of fear, um, going into this and, and overcoming that fear was a really big deal for me. And how do you do that? I mean, that's, that's one thing you talk about as a speaker, how do you overcome fear? What are, what are your strategies? Because I couldn't imagine being up at 18,000 feet and an unsupported race. I mean, here in the States, an unsupported race sounds dangerous, let alone a, a developing nation. How did, how did you overcome that fear? Yeah, so I think number one is figuring out what you're afraid of. So being able to define what you're afraid of, it's, it's not always easy to do because that requires being really honest with yourself, but defining what you're afraid of and then addressing what the worst case scenario is. So for me, what I was afraid of was having to go back by myself and being alone in this country. But you can prepare yourself for that. You can figure out contingency plans. You you know that you're um, able to control a lot of different things. So like when you get back, you, you can say, okay, I know I'm going to go stay here. I know the hospital's here. I know I can book my plane ticket to go home at any time unless there's a strike. <laughs> so basically focusing on what you can control is the best way to control your anxiety. It's the best way to get ahead of it because we, we feel out of control and anxious um, when we're afraid. So if you can bring it back and focus on the things that you can control, then that really helps. Does that work for you in your schedule with other stuff that you do? I mean, if you look at your schedule, whether it's work or whether it's preparing for a race, can it sometimes feel overwhelming? And when that happens, how do you do you do you apply the same the, the same strategy then of just focusing on one thing at a time? Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm I'm kind of a, a peculiar professional athlete because my training is not my number one priority. <laughs> and it like most professional athletes it is, but I have I have a lot of different things that I do. And my, my goal isn't to just go fast on a bike. My goal is to help make people's lives better. And I do that with writing and a podcast and a product line and speaking and a bunch of different things. So I take on a lot in my daily life. And sometimes it does feel completely overwhelming and that I'm out of control. So what I do in those situations is go to what I can, can control. And I do that by creating a, a, um, a schedule creating time in my calendar where it's like, I have all the things that I need to get done. I see them in my calendar. So I feel comfortable knowing that I'm going to be able to get it done and also being able to rest and take breaks and scheduling that in. And that's been the hardest part for me is, um, you can be as, as rigid and scheduled and have everything planned out. But if you're feeling overwhelmed and that's still not working, it just means that you need to rest. And there's this great book and you should actually talk to these authors, the book, maybe you have, but the book is called peak performance. Mm. Um, by Brad Silberg, Brad Silberg and Steve Magnus. And the whole premise of the book is how to, how to have the courage to rest. And they talk to a bunch of different people from like artists to entrepreneurs, to athletes, to, to everybody. And the key to being the most productive and feeling the most in control and, and killing the overwhelmed feeling is taking the time to rest. And well, it's hard to do that because we feel like we can't, um, we feel like we're going to miss out. We're not going to be as productive, but the studies show that you're actually more productive when you take the time to rest. Well, and that's an interesting thing, Sonia, and I'll definitely, I'll definitely look up that book because one of the sub-themes of this podcast is, is recovery, rest and recovery, the role that that plays in fitness because exercise you know, out on the bike is stress applied to the body, and the rest period after that is when your body actually becomes stronger. How has that changed your approach to, to, to training? I mean, what is because I can imagine that when you first get into being a professional mountain biker and, and you sound like you're a little bit of a high achiever, that you probably want to be able to <laughs> kind of train quite a bit. But 
and it might seem counterintuitive to train re- to train less to get better to get more fit. How does that work for you in terms of, of your training, the approach of resting more? Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought this up because I was chronically overtrained when I first became a pro mountain biker. I was always training and thinking that I needed to just ride my bike more so I could get faster. And overtraining sucks. Like you feel terrible in your races, you don't feel good in your life. So just I've been doing this long enough where I can tell when I'm starting to get overtrained. So and and this is the thing that most people don't realize is that it's not just about how many hours that I exercise and I can recover from that. It's about energy management. It's about what are the other things that you're doing in your life that are causing you to be fatigued. It's not just about the exercise. So whenever I'm traveling a lot or I have people visiting or I have a lot of a lot of inputs other than my training, I will automatically reduce my training load because I know that I'm going to be tired on my bike and it's going to lead to overtraining. So yeah, resting, I actually train probably less hours than most people think. Like I'd say an average of 12 hours a week. And there are the 20 hour weeks, there are the seven hour weeks, but most people think, oh, she, she races her bike for eight hours at a time. She must be riding a ton. And like a lot of my competitors and they do train 20 hours a week, but I actually find that I'm faster when I train less. Well, it's interesting because the Soviets were the uh, the original pioneers of sports psychology, and their approach, Sonia, was going into a meet, going into a competition. They wanted the athletes to be rested and, and relaxed because as soon as that race starts, what happens to your body as soon as that as soon as the gun goes off or the flag goes down? Yeah, you're in a total total state of adrenaline. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly it. So if you go into an event overtrained and, and slightly fatigued, you you don't have that spare capacity. Whereas if you go into an event with the Russians found, the Soviets, if, if you go into an event a little bit well-rested and relaxed, as soon as the event starts, that you know the adrenaline, the epinephrine pick up and you, you rely on your training. So it's interesting to hear from your perspective because usually I talk about it from more of an academic perspective. Do you have a favorite go-to recovery strategy? Because I imagine you get be- pretty beat up doing a 24-hour or 100-mile race. Yeah, I think that spending time with friends helps me recharge and having community around you is extremely important for not only your happiness, but also for longevity. So connecting with friends and something for me that is really huge for my recovery time is playing music. So like I played flute growing up, but now I like dabble in piano and I play guitar and I love to sing. So for me doing that, it's it's awesome because it, it puts you in a state of presence once again, like on the mountain bike, when you're riding technical trails with rocks, you can only think about what's happening in that moment. And whenever you play music, if you're playing music, that's challenging, it's the same thing. It's like your entire brain has to focus on something completely different from what you're used to. So it helps you not think about all those other things that are stress and it's also not physical. So your body can rest. That's, that's an interesting thing, I think, because my understanding, there are athletes who are musicians. What's your go-to? When you're out on a, when you're out on a, a course and, and you're doing a long ride, my go-to is I'll sometimes I'll have, there's an Ozzy Osbourne song I'll sing to myself, or there's a Led Zeppelin song that I sing to myself, depending on where I'm riding. You know, what's your go-to music that you play in your head when you're, when you're on a course? Uh, I actually don't have a go-to song. <laughs> sometimes I actually make up songs and I sing them out loud and I've <laughs> or songs. I just think of a song that I like that day and I sing it out loud. And I've actually been known, like people actually have heard me singing on the race course. <laughs> and it's a, it's a funny tool cause I don't do it on purpose, but it actually demoralizes your competition because they hear you singing while they're suffering. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't even think about that more for me. It's just more of like, I kind of, the landscape, there's, there's one, I, there's a place I ride here in San Diego that they call it the tunnels. It has these like 12 and 14 foot trees and you're riding. It's like being on the forest moon of Endor. You, it's like a single track through trees. And it, there's always a Led Zeppelin song. I think it's gallows pole. I'll start singing to myself um, while I ride that. And then when I'm going downhill, it's more like I, I'll do more Ozzy Osbourne. Um, was it speak of the devil or Iron, no, Iron Man? Iron Man's the one that pops in my head when I'm flying downhill, you know, so I, I figured I had to ask that question to see if I'm make sure I'm not the only one doing that as I'm riding. Now, the hilarious thing is some of my races, some of the stage races, you have to have a teammate. So you have to have, it can be a male or a female that you ride the whole race with and you support one another. So I have a really fun teammate that I've ridden with a lot named Gordon Wadsworth. And he and I will actually sing together while we're racing. <laughs> That's kind of fun. And I do think that would take a little, that would definitely send the, the competition off kilter. So besides, <laughs> besides doing the Himalayas, you've done other extreme, what other extreme events have you done? 
Yeah. So, uh, I've raced in Sri Lanka. I've done the first and only mountain bike race in Haiti. And that was the race I was afraid to go to as well because it was, or it still is the, a really dangerous place to go. Well, I, um, I, won't, I won't say if the president of the United States just call Haiti, but <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah, top. Right. Well, I try not to date this, but anyway, sorry about that. I just, <laughs> yeah, we won't, won't, won't quote him, but I've been having to explain to my daughter why there's a potty word on a uh, CNN, but yeah. So you're racing <laughs> Haiti. How, how was that? How gnarly was being in Haiti? Uh, it was really interesting. It was the only place, cause I've been to lots of third world countries. Like I've raced in the Sahara desert in Morocco. Um, it was the only third world country that I've been to where the people did not seem joyful mm. ever, like anywhere in the world. Like people don't smile there. They, they look like it's, it's a little bit eerie. Um, and it's really sad because yeah, the culture is just, it's just so different. Like a lot of the other third world countries I've been to, people have nothing, but they still find joy in their lives. And it's really apparent, but in Haiti, there, there wasn't any joy except for there's a town I went to called Jack Mel and it's kind of like their version of new Orleans. And they had one festival hmm. and during that one festival, everybody seemed to be happy and there was music and art and it was really neat. But aside from that, I didn't see any joy. That'd be, you know, I know I've been in the Philippines, I've been in Southeast Asia and, and you're right. Most people tend to be very easygoing and very, very joyful. I just Haiti's one of these countries that just they they can't seem to catch a break. You know what? But and what was Sri Lanka like? How was it to ride in Sri Lanka? Oh, Sri Lanka was amazing. Like the mountain biking itself wasn't very good. It was mostly like actually there's quite a bit of pavement, but the climbs are very steep, and we got to ride through all these tea plantations and. The, a really thing, a really interesting thing that I love about these Asian countries is that they don't treat their elderly the same way that we do. The expectation of the elderly, mm. and you probably saw this too when you were in Southeast Asia. Um, I would see these women; they're like eighty, and they'd be hiking up the side of a mountain with a load on their back and picking tea leaves, and like they probably had to work, which kind of you know that that call that what you will, but they're still using their bodies. And if you think of how we treat most 80 year olds here in the United States, our expectation is really different. So I think that if you, if you keep using your body as you age and you don't give up on that, you actually are going to stay healthier for longer, but I'm digressing a little bit on, no, on but, that. But. but that's exactly, but that's the point though, is finding the activities that, that we enjoy doing, because if you enjoy doing stuff and you do it throughout aging, it does keep your physiology young and, and you, it, it looks, it's not necessarily for look, but just your longevity and your energy and, and everything. How long do you plan on doing this on that note? I mean, how long do you plan on doing the, these long stage races, races and these 24 hour events? I'd say at the top level, I have about another decade in me if I, if I want to keep doing it. Um, but I plan to mountain bike for the rest of my life. Like my father-in-law is 70 and he mountain bikes and my dad is 64 and he's only been mountain biking for a year. Like he started mountain biking at age 63. So people who say they're too old to mountain bike, especially when they're like in their forties, I just tell them you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what, and that's where I'm, I'm right in the middle of middle. I'm 45 and, and I still, I've just, you know, I took a couple years off cause my daughters are three and five years old. And so I just didn't have the time to get out and ride. Now I'm trying to, I'm negotiating with my wife to buy, I have a 26 inch. I bought a really nice uh, 26 inch right before my first daughter was born. So now I'm trying to talk my wife into upgrading to a 27 and a half or 29. What do you ride? I mean, what's your, what's your favorite bike? I mean, and who's your sponsor? Yeah. I, I looked it up, but I, you know, I, I, unfortunately I didn't write it down in my notes here. Who are you sponsored by and what's your favorite type of bike to ride? Yeah. So for those of you guys who aren't familiar with mountain biking, there are different wheel diam or wheel diameter sizes. So there's 27.5 and 29 right now. And it depends. So like the bigger wheels, the 29er, it's great for like dirt road riding or riding that isn't super rocky or bumpy or twisty. But for here in BC, British Columbia has the hardest, most technical steep mountain bike trails in the world. And I actually prefer the smaller wheels, the 27.5, because it's just easier to ride. It's easier to maneuver the bike. It's like the 29er is like your monster truck mm. and the 27.5 is like the Mini Cooper. But <laughs> that's, um, a, that's a great analogy. Okay. But yeah, I'm sponsored by Scott. Um, they've been a sponsor. This is the third year with them. And Scott is an awesome company. They started in the United States in Idaho, and now their their headquarters is in Switzerland. But they're a great company because they are always supporting women, and they're always um, innovating. Like they're always coming out with these really cool new bikes and staying on, ahead of the curve. And 
as somebody who does really long races, I need a bike that's going to be reliable. Like I can't be in, in the Sahara desert and have my bike breaking down on me. So all of my sponsors, like I don't ride for a team. I, I manage myself as an athlete and I, I try and find all my own personal sponsors so I can work with brands that I believe in that I know their products are going to work and I can trust them when I'm in Nepal, when I'm in Morocco, or even when I'm in the back country in Canada, because I just can't afford to have something not work for me. Well, how much, how much, then kit, you're stranded. Well, how much kit do you carry with you? How much, when you go on a 24, well, you said when you go on a 24 hour race that you, you have a pit area, but if you go on a stage race, like in the Himalayas, how much gear do you have to carry with you? Yeah, I carry quite, I carry probably more, um, than the average racer because a lot of people, they try and race light, meaning that the lighter you are on your bike, the less weight you have to carry uphill and the faster you go. But if you have a flat tire, like if, like I, I'll, t- I, I'm sponsored by Maxis and I'll run a slightly heavier tire. That's more durable because I don't want to run something that's really lightweight meant for cross country racing, where you're going to have a flat tire and have a problem. So like you can fix a flat tire, but you lose a lot of time. So yeah, like I'll carry tools. I'll carry, um, I'm sponsored by Topeak as well. So they make actually really functional, lightweight multi-tools. So I can have like 20 tools and the thing barely weighs anything and it fits in my pocket. So you know, having, having great tools and I'll carry things to, yeah, to fix my bike, to fix a broken chain. Um, if I, if you happen to puncture the side of a tire, which I haven't done with Maxis, but I've done with other brands, um, you want to be able to fix the hole in the tire, like a patch. So I, I, I carry enough where unless something incredibly catastrophic happens, I'm going to be able to, to get through, but like a lot of people won't carry a patch. They will only carry like the lightest, super minimal multi-tool possible. Like they'll carry everything light and then they'll try and rely on other people. If something goes wrong, like they'll, if someone rides by, they'll say, Hey, can I borrow? Like, cause I'll carry a pump and a CO2 and a CO2, you can inflate the tire really quickly, but it doesn't always work. So if your CO2 doesn't work, then you can't pump up your tire. And if you don't have a pump with you, then you're screwed. So I I'm very self-reliant. I don't rely on the, the kindness of someone else stopping in the middle of their race to help me if something goes wrong. Yeah, that's not, I mean, I, that's kind of a little bit selfish because why would you rely? I mean, you're in a race, you're competing and yes, you want to see everybody, you know, be safe. But at the same time, if you're willing to carry an extra, you know, half kilo of kit, why should you stop and, and let somebody borrow it? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. I've actually never thought about that. And, and, but <laughs> Fortunately, I I've it. never had to ask somebody. <laughs> well, no, but I, I don't mean, and I don't mean to be like selfish, but it's like, Hey, if you guys are out there on the course, I would just, I would look at it. And like, if somebody you know broke down and they didn't have the right kit with them, I'd be like, Hey, that's your tough luck. I'm carrying an extra whatever. <laughs> Why should, you know, it's like, I don't want you to be unsafe, but anyway, sorry. That's just kind of my, I, I was a rugby player. So we always had that camaraderie, but it was always that that fierce competition as well. You know, we, it was more camaraderie after the competition <laughs> when you're on the field, it was definitely going, going at it. So let me, let's come back to, cause I want to come back to the TEDx talk as, as we get ready to wrap up here, Sonia. One of the things I really liked about that is, is you went into a specific experience when you're in the Himalayas, in the yak attack, what happened when your brakes went out and, and how did that really change your, your, your attitude and change your approach to things? Yeah. So for, for those of you guys who haven't seen my Ted talk, what happened was I made it over the, that pass that 18,000 foot pass. And it was day nine of 10 of the race. So I only had, I had like, uh, probably like a 10, 20 mile downhill. And then the next day was mostly flat. And then I would have finished the race and been the first woman to complete this and overcome all these fears. Emotions were running high and I go to ride down the backside and neither one of my brakes work. And on mountain bikes, we have hydraulic brakes, which means that there is oil in the brake mm. and there is oil coming out of my brakes. And, you know, products aren't tested at 18,000 feet. So this brand at the time, I'm riding a different brake brand now, but the brand I was riding at the time, it was like a prototype and it just went wrong. So mm. I had to walk for seven hours to get to the finish line that day. And there's no bike shops You're in the middle of nowhere. So I thought that the race was over for me. So I had come that far. I had overcome the hardest part of the race only to fail because of something that was out of my control. So I was devastated and it, I don't know why, but like in my Ted talk, I had a camera with me and I, I was like so mad. I was like crying and just losing it. And I took my camera out and I filmed it and it's just it still seems really bizarre that I did that. But I remember someone saying to me, you need to film this experience even when it's not going well. So it was, it was a moment where I had to say, okay, well, is this trip a total failure or is this a a success? Like 
what, how am I going to define success? Is it finishing the race? Well, yeah, that would be fantastic to be finishing this race and, and being the first woman and achieving that goal. But I had to look backwards and, and look at all the things that I had overcome along the way and look at all the things that were going to make me better in my life moving forward and, and being able to overcome all those fears and know that I can take my bike over 18,000 feet and go to another country and, and do something that attempt something no one had ever done before. That's what really mattered to me. And still, like I, I did finish the race because one of my friends actually had all the bad things happen to him that I was afraid of. <laughs> So he did get sick. He didn't finish the race, blah, blah, blah. Um, not blah, blah, blah for him, but I was able to finish the race, but really like I finished that race twice now. And that isn't what I think about when I think about the yak attack. I don't think, Oh, well I won the race twice. I think about the things that I overcame and I think about all how all those things have enabled me to be even more successful in my life and in my career. So if you can look at challenges in your life, look at things that have happened to you and maybe they didn't turn out the exact way that you wanted them to, but maybe you can look back and say, okay, well, I learned a lot from this and there's a lot of things here that make me better in my life. That's what really matters. It's not the end goal. And that's, I think that's really important. That's what I really got out of that talk, Sonia, was your, your idea of redefining success. Because I think a lot of us will, will have these high expectations for ourselves, and maybe we beat ourselves up because we don't achieve them. And it's important to take a step back and look what you have achieved. Do you do that now in your races? Do you sit back and reflect? When you complete a race, how do you reflect on the race and evaluate your performance? Yeah, well, number one, it's is it a race that I'm proud of? Did I perform? Did I, did I do my best? Did I give it my all? And that's not always easy because when you want to win a race and then you lose, but you did everything that you possibly could have done, or maybe you show up that day and you don't feel good on your bike. Like you don't always feel amazing on your bike at, at races. So it's hard because our ego gets tied up in our results and in what other people think about us and like our self-worth gets tied to that stuff too. So being able to say, okay, what did I do right in this race instead of what did I do wrong in this race? And a great example was, um, this past year I went to a race in Pennsylvania and I had this, like I was saying that I had this catastrophic failure on my bike, like uh, um, on one of the things on my bike. And I had never had something like that happen before. And it was a completely freak accident. And I wasn't able to finish the race and I was winning this race. And I had all these other bad things happen. Like I was cooking my own food and the night before the race this like blender exploded boiling sauce all over me. And I got mm. second degree burns all over my body. And like on the way there, all my flights got screwed up. So people look at it and say, Oh my gosh. And I actually did a podcast episode about this specifically, but people say like, that was a trip from hell. That race must've sucked. Oh my gosh. Like what you poor thing, what a terrible week. But I, I literally did not feel like it was a terrible week. I actually, cause I was so focused on all the things that were going well that I actually look at that week and say, that was actually a really awesome week. And I was winning the race and I, I overcame like that race previously was something that was too hard for me. Like the trails were too technical and I overcame that and I was crushing the technical. So that was my goal was, it was, was of course to win the race, but my goal was also to prove to myself that I had improved enough that I could really, really ride those trails well. And that is what the success was, was I rode those trails. Well, I didn't win the race because some things, bad things happened out of my control and that's okay. So again, it's like applying that of what did I do? Well, what am I proud of and not focusing on all the bad things? So is that, I mean, that's an excellent example of mindset, right? Cause that's been a buzzword in a lot of performance, in, in a lot of just training across the board. How does it, how, you know, what's your thing about creating that mindset? How, do you, do you have to take a step back and kind of be outside yourself or do you go into an event with the, you know, with the idea, with the mindset of you're just going to stay focused on the positive? Uh, I try and approach my entire life that way. And people say to me like, Oh, the, there's no way that you're always positive and happy all the time. And they're right. I'm not positive and happy all the time, but it's what you do in those moments. Like when you do feel bad and it's important to recognize those feelings of being sad and, and disappointed and frustrated because hiding from those feelings isn't healthy, but it's what you do after you've acknowledged those feelings that matters. Like what the next step that you take and like happiness is a work ethic. It's something that you have to commit to. And I wasn't always this way. Like my first few races as a pro, 
I, I sucked. I was like coming in almost last place and I would actually cry in my races because I was so mad that I sucked and that I was worried that people weren't going to think I was good enough. And really that internal work is something that we all need to do is figure out where our self-worth comes from, what makes us feel good. Why, why are we so afraid of, of failing and, and worrying about what other people think? So I, I think that committing every single day to looking, choosing your explanatory style, choosing how you tell yourself a story, our, our words and our thoughts are the most powerful thing that we have in our life. So like, I'm not always going to be able to turn everything around into a positive thing. Like it, it happens where I'm, I'm, I am negative sometimes, but being able to work on it and to, to just approach, have that as your approach to life is I'm going to try and tell myself stories where I'm going to feel empowered and good because negativity is contagious and negativity is a spiral. And it's, we all know what it feels like to be around a negative person. Like that doesn't feel good. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's figuring out what works for you and, and like you hear all about like gratitude journals and gratitude practices, and that doesn't always really work for me. Um, but I think just telling yourself things in a way that's going to empower you versus in ways that are going to make you feel like a victim and having that personal responsibility to, that you can fix it, I think is the important thing. And then how powerful is it to be willing to try? You know, what is, what does that mean? Cause I think, I think a lot of people, you know, especially with what you're doing, I mean, the fact is that you're willing to try to go to the Himalayas, you're willing to try, you know, to do a bike ride across Haiti. How powerful is just having the willingness to try something new? Having the willingness to try something new is the key to, be, to, to doing new things and, and doing the things that you always wanted to do in your life. Like a lot of times the reason that we don't try something that we want to do is because we're afraid. We're afraid of what's going to happen. Like what if, what if it doesn't work out or what if I look stupid or, you know, what if all those things. And at the end of the day, when you look back on the things that are important to you in your life and the things that you're most proud of. It was the things that you weren't sure what was going to happen. You tried and maybe you struggled. It was the hard things that you're most proud of. It's not the easy things. So having that willingness to try, like for me, if I wasn't willing to try mountain biking, I would probably be stuck doing some job that I hated in an office and have this life that I didn't sign up for. But I was willing to try mountain biking. And then I was willing to, like I got a job in the on the bike industry doing marketing. I quit my engineering job to do marketing. Did I have a background in marketing? No but I was willing to try and like writing for a bunch of different publications. Like how did I ever take a creative writing class? No, but I was willing to try and I've been able to like affect people's lives in a positive way. So all the things I've done in my life that mean something to me came from a willingness to try. And I have failed a lot and that's okay. Like it's, it's not a bad thing to fail. And we all, it's like really, you know, everybody talks about failure, but it's, it's just figuring out like, why do you feel bad when you fail? Like everybody is different and, and then finding a way to, to reconcile with that. I think that's such an important thing because we're going to fail. I mean, I'm just thinking about your, your racing and I'm thinking about, you know, any sport, you can only have one winner. And so not winning is not necessarily failing. It's an opportunity to say, what can I do better? What can I, what did I learn from this experience and what, what can I do next time? I mean, I, yeah, I totally agree with you because I'm, I'm a, you know, I do my own little consulting business too. And it's like, I had to be willing to try that, right? I had to be willing to leave a job that was consistent and steady and had to be willing to kind of face that fear and try to try to make things happen. So I, that's a powerful message. And I think you did a great job of explaining it right there, Sonia. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. And like with races, if I'm not winning the race or the race isn't going well, like the ripcord is, I tell myself like, well, this isn't permanent. It's going to be over soon at some point. <laughs> and also like nobody cares. Like I'm doing a race, like half, half the world doesn't even know what mountain or more than half the world doesn't even know what mountain biking is. Like, who am I to think that I'm so self I'm so important that everybody cares about my race result. Like nobody is going to remember who won the race three months later. Like it just doesn't matter. It matters to you, but that's it. Like people don't care. And I think that we get wrapped up, so wrapped up and self-involved and I've done it myself thinking, oh, everybody's going to care. Like if I come second or third, but people just don't care. They remember how you treated them. They remember how you made them feel and they remember how you acted, but they generally don't remember your result. Wow. That's, that's a powerful message. Now tell me about the plant power tribe. What is, what is that? I mean, cause you, one of the things that you, you, you do is I guess you're a, uh, are you a vegan and, and how'd that come about? Yeah. So I eat a plant-based, like a whole food plant-based diet. Um, 
I don't necessarily call myself a vegan. I just, there's just so much, there's so many implications with that word and it can be <laughs> yeah, you can walk into like a trap. so political. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to, I'm not trying to label you. Yeah. Just, it's an inflammatory word. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, um, I changed my diet about five years ago cause my, my now husband, um, he told me about this documentary called forks over knives. And now there's like a billion, um, documentaries that are awesome about plant-based lifestyle. But, I was always afraid of getting cancer and heart disease. And those were things that were just really a big deal for me because I love living so much and I want to live as long as I possibly can. And everything that the documentary said was that our lifestyle, including our diet, can affect our longevity and our disease processes. So I learned that you can reverse heart disease with a plant-based diet and you can prevent heart disease. You can prevent cancer, like not all cancers, and you can prevent diabetes. Like just the world is so much better for, for that person because they don't have to be afraid of getting these diseases. And also environmentally it's better. So I was afraid to change my diet because I'm an ultra endurance athlete. Like what if I, um, get malnutritioned or what if I don't get enough protein or what if I start sucking on my bike? Like this is my job. Like what if I start sucking? But I, again, it's that willingness to try something and see how it goes. And I, I made a, a gradual change. And what happened was I got faster and I got better. And I went from being like third and fourth place in my races to winning most of my races and my recovery times got better and I felt better and I had better mental clarity. So I actually ate that way for about four years before I told anybody about it because I was afraid that people were going to judge me or people were going to be afraid that I was judging them. But I decided that this has been so important to me and it's, it's really made such a difference in my life. And I've just seen so many stories and evidence of people getting better, whether it's recovering from diseases or as an athlete or just whatever in their life when they switch to a plant-based diet. Um, so I, I started talking about it just about a year ago. So I started a Facebook group called the plant powered tribe. And it's not like, I don't believe that everybody needs to eat a hundred percent plant-based diet, but I think that if more people can just eat, eat more healthy fruits and vegetables and less processed food and just trend in that direction, then you're going to feel better. And if you end up wanting to go hundred percent plant-based, that's cool. But I think, I think that it's scary for people to say, I am a plant-based person or I'm a vegan or whatever, because what happens if you change your mind? So that's a concern for people. Um, so yeah, I just, I just think that eating more of a plant-based diet is better for you. It's better for the planet. You're going to feel better. You're going to perform better. And I just want to be a resource for people and a mentor for people who are interested in living that way. I think that's a cool way. That's definitely a cool way to approach it. I can understand why you don't want to use that, that vegan title because yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of connotations with that. And Sonia, if you're winning these, these stage races, if you're finishing 24 hour races, I think that's a pretty strong testament to the benefits of a plant plant-based diet. And the last question here to wrap up, what's your, what's your slogan and, and where can people get more information about you? Yeah. My, so my, my, you might have to, to beep it out if you're not allowed to have cuss words, but <laughs> my slogan right. is a uh, be brave, do epic shit. And I think that everything we talked about in this podcast supports that slogan and yeah, find me online guys. SoniaLooney.com will send you everywhere. I'm on, I love Instagram and social media. Listen to my podcast, the Sonia Looney show. I think you guys will really enjoy that. It's about mindset, plant-based nutrition and inspiring stories and yeah, just online is the best place. Just Google me. I'm, I'm everywhere. And I would love, love, love to meet you and connect with you. Okay. And where's, where's been, where's been your favorite, like where was your absolute favorite or best experience you had racing? Something that just, you won't ever be able to kind of recreate again. Uh, that's a hard question. Um, different. Okay. I have three answers and I'll make it quick. Yeah. Nepal for, for the most interesting cultural eye-opening experience um, Columbia for the most like, oh my gosh, I'm a real athlete. Cause like ESPN was there filming our race and just, there was so many different people watching and cheering. And it was just incredible to have that kind of support from a country and the best trails is definitely in British Columbia. The best, the best quality of course is in British Columbia. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap up. Well, Sonia, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. And all her contact information and things she talked about will be down below the show notes. I want to take a moment to apologize for the brief interruption there due to Skype. I guess the gerbils stopped running. I'm not sure if the gerbils stopped running on her side or my side. 
Um, but thanks for bearing with us for that little uh, brief technical difficulty. As I do more of these podcasts and, and start to re- reach outside my immediate sphere of influence or my immediate circle of fitness, um, fitness colleagues, fitness contacts, it's really fascinating to, to speak with different people from who apply fitness differently. And, and you know, to, to talk to Sonia, to hear her story and, and to hear how she how she does it, what she does is pretty fascinating. You know, I think it's really interesting that she challenged herself by doing a multi-day stage race across the Himalayas. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever done any, any kind of mountain biking or anything like that, and all of a sudden you might have, I mean, you know, just thinking about that brake failure is extremely nerve-wracking. You know, I mean, my mountain bike rides are absolutely nothing compared to hers. You know, I piddle around Southern California a little bit. I couldn't even imagine what it would be like to be up at that that elevation and all of a sudden realize that that your brakes are failing. So to be able to do that is just is, is extremely impressive. And you can hear, I mean, she's a very, you know, we're going to see a lot of stuff from her, not just in the mountain biking world, but I do really believe that we'll see a lot more from her in other aspects of life. So it's really fun to bring her, you know, to have her on and to hear her story. Now, I want to talk a little bit about training and what it takes to train for endurance events. And one of the things I think was interesting is how she said that sometimes, you know, getting more rest helps her train or helps her race a little bit better. You know, because I don't know how many of you ever train for a, you know, something like a race where it's a half marathon, a marathon or a 5K. And it really is, you know, sometimes we get so focused on training and we get the psychology that we need to do more and more and more but in reality, and I say this all the time, so I apologize if it's a little repetitive. Well, not really, because it's an important message. But it's really important to remember that exercise is stress on the body. In in preparing for a major event, whether you're running a 5K for a charity or you're doing a multi-day stay a multi-day stage race, you know, at, at extreme elevation, you know, it, it's important to remember that we don't want to overtax our body because if we go into an event you know, in a state of fatigue, we're just not going to perform well. So sometimes if you feel like you, you know, you're a little dragging a little bit and you're not fired up to go to the gym, by all means, take the day off, take a rest day. You know, a rest day never hurt anyone, especially if you've done the volume. I mean, you know, I don't know Sonya's training schedule per se, and, and, you know, I haven't really followed up with her since we had that conversation, but you're not doing yourself any favors if you're training from a state of fatigue. You know, even if you just work out casually, I mean, if you feel fatigued, chances are you are fatigued and and doing a hard workout is not going to make you feel better. If anything, trying to work out hard when you're fatigued could cause injury and and being overtrained. I mean, like she said, overtraining sucks. If you've ever done that, it really isn't pleasant. So it's important to consider that in your training program, whatever it is. And sure, you can train hard. There's nothing wrong with training hard, but you cannot train hard every single time you go for a workout. You know, that's why sometimes, I, you know, I don't know her training calendar, but I'm sure sometimes she does a hard ride. Other times she just does an easy ride, you know, lower, lower intensity volume ride, you know, versus a hard training ride. So it's really, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to have her on. So I wanted to hear from, from a pro athlete, especially a female pro athlete, the, how, how they train and what they do differently. And, and what do they do that sets them apart from their, their competition, from their colleagues? Because we're all looking for ways that we can get better, right? And think about it from a work standpoint. If you're at work all the time, if you're always, if you're staying late, if you're taking work home, if you answer emails, you know, 21 hours a day, you get burned out. You get overtrained from work and, and you need a couple of days off. I mean, you need to use vacation. I think it's, you know, to kind of, this is a sidetrack, but, but not really, because when you look at the amount of vacation that Americans use from their work, we, we underutilize our vacation. And it's important to take that time to recharge, to refresh, reconnect with the family, you know, even reconnect with your friends. You know, we can't go at a high intensity all the time. So when we look at training for something like an extreme race event, it's a matter of being smart. It's not how hard you train. And I'll say that again. It's not how hard you train. It's how smart you train. It's listening to your body. It's, it's pushing hard when you can push hard and you feel like it. And it's taking time off to rest when your body gives you that message that it needs to do that. So hopefully you're getting that information out of this podcast. Hopefully this was, I mean, hopefully this was insightful 
to hear how somebody, you know, trains for one of the most grueling competitions. I mean, doing a stage race or a 24-hour mountain bike race, I mean, that, that's tough. That, that is not easy. Even a 90-minute race, you know, ain't a piece of cake. So it's really fun to have somebody get that perspective. If you want to hear it from a different perspective, one of my early podcasts was with a guy named Joe Decker. Joe is one of the elite, and I'm going to say that he's one of the elite kind of ultra, I don't know if it's ultra endurance or if it's obstacle course racing or adventure racing, whatever you want to call it, but he won the the Spartan death race two times, and he's done the race across the Sahara and, and other things. So I interview him about that, and you can check that out. It's one of the early episodes of All About Fitness. You might need to scroll down a little bit. Anyway, I want to say thank you for tuning in. Just want to let you know about Joe's interview in case you're into that. And, and it's really a pleasure to have you stop by. If you're enjoying All About Fitness, please do me a favor or please do us a favor and give it a quick rating however you listen to it because you know the way the algorithms work. I mean, it's all algorithms nowadays, right? You know the way the algorithms work. The more ratings a podcast receives, the higher up in the search rankings, and the more people can find out about it and benefits from its resource. So if you have anybody you'd like me to interview, and that's how I found out about Sonia. Somebody, somebody reached out to me and said, hey, she might make a good interview. And I really appreciate that. So thank you. And if you have anybody that you'd like me to interview, please, by all means, send me an email, Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. That's Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And, and let me know who I should interview and why. And, and for those of you that maybe sent stuff in, I will be following up. So if you're looking forward to hearing a guest, if you wonder if I got the email, yes, I did. I just haven't had time to work that into the schedule, but I plan on doing that. So keep those emails coming. If you want to stay in touch via social media, my Instagram is Pete McCall. It's Pete McCall underscore fitness. Instagram is Pete McCall underscore fitness. And my Twitter is Pete MC underscore fitness. Thanks for stopping by. All about fitness. I look forward to having you join me.